All right, we are in Luke chapter 9, and we're going to be finishing up Luke chapter 9 today. I want to give you a brief overview just to, so you can see uh, where we are at in the book of Luke. So far, uh, what Luke has done, he's mostly spent the first uh, nine chapters talking about the works of Jesus, what he has done, the miracles, the te- uh, not the teaching, the miracles, all that sort of stuff, uh, his love, uh, it, all the things. Um, Chandler, I am hot. Not me, but the microphone is hot. Uh, the next nine or so chapters, about ten, Jesus is, Luke is going to focus on the words of Jesus. He spent time talking about the works, what Jesus did. And if you look and your Bible is red letter, you look in the next ten chapters, most of it is red letters, which means Jesus is teaching, he's speaking. And so it's, it's going to be a, a little different feel these next ten chapters. And then the last five chapters or so of Luke is fully devoted to the last couple weeks of Jesus' life. The cross, uh, the resurrection, and, and all that happened around that. Um, if we're talking about who Jesus has spent his time with, the first nine chapters, he's really spent it with the crowds. He's spent it with the average people, the, the, the outsiders, and, and all these kinds of people. That's who Jesus has spent time with. These next nine or so chapters, he's really going to spend it with his disciples, those who he are following him. And he's going he's to speak to them, and he's going to train them and teach them so that they can carry this on after he leaves. I um, mean, he's really, at the end of his life, he's going to speak to the world, right? He spent most of his time in the north of Israel in Galilee. These next 10 or so chapters, these last few months of his life, he's, he's on a journey. He's traveling, kind of meandering down south on his way to Jerusalem to accomplish uh, what he is there for. Now, as we encounter the teaching of Jesus over these next 10 chapters, I'm going to be honest. Some of it doesn't sit well with our American modern sensibilities, right? Jesus is going to say things and teach things that in our gut or in our culture or in our, our whatever, we don't necessarily agree with or like, right? And so let me just say, that's okay. It's okay to be challenged, right? We believe, we talked about it in life group this morning, that Jesus is the truth. And so he's presenting the truth. And, and we've got to course correct to that. Today, Jesus is going to talk about counting the cost of following him. Counting the cost of following him. And, and it's a hard lesson for us, right? Because we do have, there is a cost. There is things that we have to give up. There is a life that we have to change, that, that our life is changed when we decide to follow Jesus. And, and today, this, the example is negative. <laughs> the three people he's going to encounter that he asked them to count this cost of following him, they don't. They, they look at it and they weigh the cost and they go, okay, the price for doing that is this. I'm not willing to pay that. But my hope is today that as we see them and, and we read this example that we would go, you know what? The cost of following Jesus, yeah, it may be kind of high but it's worth it, right? Because every Christian, every follower of Jesus looks at that, at the cost of following Jesus and says, this is worth it. That's what we believe, right? And so Jesus is going to give us an honest perspective today. So let's look at it. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 51. 
It says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people, the Samaritans, did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Just, just soak that in for a second. But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But the man said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. And God, at times it's challenging. At times the cost of, of following you and walking with you seems high. Um, and it may not be the same issues in our culture that they, that they dealt with, God, but at times in our culture it's it's hard to stand on truth and to, to follow you sometimes, God. I pray that each one of us who has a relationship with you, God, would, would see that cost, God, but we would see the benefit of what we actually gain, and we would go, you know what, whatever cost it may cost me, God, it is worth it, God. I pray that you would convince us of that this morning. God, and I pray that whatever is holding some back in the room from actually following you, whether it's these examples given in Scripture or something else, God, I pray that um, you would help us to give that up in order to follow you. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right. So let's look at it. Verse 51. It says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Everyone agrees in every commentary you read, this is a turning point in the book of Luke because Jesus is all of a sudden, he has set his face to Jerusalem, right? It says, when the days drew near. It, it reminds us that God has had this plan from the very beginning, that this Jesus was going to come. He was going to be born as the seed of woman, and he was going to come and rescue us from our sins, and the way he was going to do that, it, it says he was going to be taken up. What does that mean? He's going to be taken up. In, in yours, it may translate that as his ascension, right? His being lifted up. His ascension, right? How was Jesus uh, lifted up? Well, look at, this is John 3, verse 14 and 15. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. See, Jesus was going to be lifted up in three very distinct ways. One, he was going to be lifted up on the cross so that whoever looks to him like the serpent in the wilderness, and we don't have time to chase all that down, he was lifted up on the cross, and he died on the cross in our place. But that's not the only place that he was lifted up. After he was dead, where did he go? He was put in the grave. 
And he spent three days in the grave. And at the end of those three days, what happened? He was lifted up, right? He, he arose, right, from the dead, proving that he has power over sin and death. And he was here on earth for about 40 days. And then what happened? He was lifted up, Gary, Ascension Day, right? Our favorite day. And uh, he was lifted up. And he sits at the Father's right hand. And he, he rules over all things. This is his purpose. And he has set his mind, his face, to this. For him to set his face, it means that he, it is, it is fixed, it is immovable. He is not going to be deterred from doing this thing. Now, I want us to think about this, because what has he just said recently? He knows that he's going to be what? To suffer, be rejected, and be killed in Jerusalem. He has set his mind and his face to go there, even though he knows what is going to happen. Hebrews 12.2 says this, that we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. See, Jesus knew this is his mission. He is here for one thing, to, to live a perfect life and die the death that we deserve so that we could be saved. But he's got to go through it to get there. And he has set his mind to it. Why? Hebrews 12, 2 says it's because of the joy set before him. He knew the joy that he would get, and he knew the joy that we would get because of this. Now, I got to thinking about this. Just what is a... What is a personal example of this? Why do, why do people endure hard things, right? It's because they believe that there is joy. There's something better on the other side of this. We all endure hard things that we believe will bring us greater joy. So I actually didn't go to school to be a preacher. Uh, never wanted to be on this stage. Had no intention of being here. I went to school, studied petroleum engineering. Why? Because they made the big bucks, right? This was my plan. And my papa did it, so I'm like, I don't know. Let's do this. And I went to A&M, studied petroleum engineering. It's a hard degree to get. And we had this class junior year. Uh, it's a reservoir engineering class. Uh, Tom Blassingame is his name. You can go look him up. He's world famous. And Tom Blassingame made every single one of the petroleum engineering students have two tests in this class. I want to say this is our only grades. We had two different 12-hour tests. We would show up on a Friday night, 7 p.m. We'd start. We'd bring food and coffee, and we'd stay up all night until 7 a.m. or 8, depending on if he was nice or not that year. Uh, and you would turn in about 50 or 60 pages of work and graphs and I don't even know. You, you just start scribbling at some point, right? Ridiculous. Two of these, right? And at the end of this, the best grade in the class was like, like a mid-60s. No one even passed this, right? It was, it was this rite of passage that we all had to go through. Uh, why would any of us do that? Why? Because we knew that if we could get through Tom Blassing Games Reservoir Engineering class and we could endure two 12-hour tests, what was waiting on the other side, right? Joy in the form of cash, right? In the form of a job, right? In the form of a career and a life for your family. We thought, man, this is worth it, right? And so we set our minds to it. And Jesus is no different right here in this moment. 
He knows what he's going to have to endure. He knows the cross. He knows the pain. He knows the separation from the Father that he's going to have to endure, but he endures it. Why? Because of the joy that is set before him. So this is this turning point in the book of Luke. The rest of it is all directed in this journey towards Jerusalem. Now Jesus, look at verse 52. He decides on his way, meandering way to Jerusalem to go through Samaria. Samaria is on the, on the east side of the Jordan, outside of the land of Israel. So look, verse 52, it says, And he sent messengers ahead of him who went ahead and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. Now Jesus, I think, went. Why? Because he loves everyone. Because he has a heart for everyone. Because the good news is not just for those in Israel. He wants to bring the good news to the people of Samaria as well. Now, we need to remind ourselves, because I think most of us, when we use the word Samaritan, what do we think of? We think of the good Samaritan, right? So we kind of have a positive view of who Samaritans are. Anybody? Yes? Give me the biscuits and gravy nod. Yes? Okay. All right. Uh, we kind of have this positive view of Samaritans. The Jews did not. We, we need to understand this. To the Jews, the Samaritans were this half-breed of people. That, that they were, they were uh, the people who had stayed behind when they were taken into exile and had intermarried with the people of Samaria. And so these modern Samaritans in this time, they were like kind of Jewish kind of Samaritan, but that means that you're not Jewish, right? There's something totally different. And Jews hated these Samaritans because in their mind they had sold out and, and had neglected God and, and, and they're a different race, they're a different ethnicity. But the Samaritans equally hated the Jews. The Jews had destroyed one of their temples. I don't know why, I just read that this week. They had done all these provocative violent things to the Samaritans. And so the Samaritans hated Jews, and they even called them the stupid people living at Shechem, right? There is no love between these people, and Jesus wants to travel through there. He has love for these people. He wants to bring them good news. Now, here's a quote I read this week uh, from John MacArthur. He says, most Jews took great pains to avoid traveling through Samaria, those who did travel through Samaria carried their own food so as not to have to eat food defiled by the unclean and despised Samaritans. Right? They don't like these people at all. And Jesus is going, hey, we're going to go stay there. Y'all go ahead and, and, and make, get, us, get us a room, get us some food. And here's what happens, verse 53. It says, the people did not receive him. Duh, right? <laughs> Duh, they don't like you, and you don't like them. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Why did they not receive him? The, the reason it tells us is because Jesus' face is set to Jerusalem. So to these Samaritans, Jesus is just another Jew. They, they, they may or may not know about all his miracles and all the things that he's done, but to, to, to them, he's just another Jew on his way to Jerusalem to worship. And for them, they hate Jews, and they hate Jewish worship, and so they hate Jesus. They're not rejecting Jesus because of his miracles or his teaching or anything. They probably really didn't know who he was. They simply rejected him for racial and ethnic reasons. 
They simply said, you're not one of us. We don't like you. No, you can't stay here. Not that that happens today, right? Their deep-seated hatred led them to reject Jesus, who's coming to bring them good news. Look at verse 54. And when the disciples, James and John, saw it, the rejection, the, the, the you can't come here, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? James and John are Jewish, and they have an equal hatred still of these Samaritans. And they are infuriated that they would not allow them to stay. And they are so insulted that they would reject Jesus, because they know who Jesus is, and, and they're just mad. And so this, this long-standing kind of racial, ethnic divide wells up in anger in them. And they ask a, a, the most ridiculous question in the world. Lord, do you want us to call fire from heaven down and consume them? My question is, can they even do this, right? Like, really? Has, like, I, there's no example of this. Jesus has not done this previously. And they're like, hey, we're going to do this now. Like, so but just forget all of that. What they're saying is, Lord, can we just annihilate them? Can we just be done with these people that we do not like? Can we just wipe them from the face of the earth? That seems appropriate to them in this moment. They want to destroy and kill their enemies. And Jesus, verse 55, what does he do? He turned and rebuked them. He turned and rebuked them. There's a lot in between those letters. <laughs> There's probably a lot of words Jesus had to say to them that day, right? He turned and rebuked James and John for suggesting that we should call fire down on those who have rejected the Christ, those who have turned away from the Messiah. Why? Because Jesus is not about destruction of his enemies. He's about salvation of his enemies. He's not coming to wipe them off the face of the earth. That comes later. That comes later. It's still in the future for us. But at this time, he comes, why? To save, to bring good news, to bring rescue. And just a side note for us as Christians today. This is an incredible example of how we should relate to those who are not Christians. Because I think... I see a lot of examples, let me just say that, <laughs> on social media and in friends and in all kinds of places where we are just like James and John towards the outsider, towards those who have rejected Christ, towards those who are notorious sinners. Our attitude is more like maybe we should just wipe this whole section of people off the face of the earth and we would be better off. That's more of our attitude today towards non-Christians than Jesus's, wanting to go to them, wanting to dine with them and eat with them and talk with them, right? If we are in Christ, we are to be more like Jesus than we are to be like James and John, amen, right? 
We're not to go on crusades against people who are still in their sins. My college pastor would say, a sinner's job is to sin. You can't be mad at them for being who they are outside of Christ. This is who they are, and this is who we were before we knew Christ. We are not called to be angry and go on rants and raves. There's so many prominent examples about this. Let me just use one. LGBTQ revolution, right? All this stuff. And before you just pucker in your seats, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. As Bible-believing people, we have clear instructions about God's truth, and we have clear instructions about what is not right and what is sinful. That does not mean that we are to call fire down from heaven on certain people. Amen? We are not called to judge. That's not my job, and that's not your job as a Christian. Our job is to speak the truth, yes, but our job is also to love, to go to the Samaritans, to go show them the good news, right? There's no question today that we are to be more like Jesus and how we relate to those who are in sin still, right? And Jesus did not shy away from calling things sin, but he also showed love and he showed mercy and he showed grace and he, he, he welcomed them in, right? We're not to shun people because of some sin that they have in their life. We're not to, to ignore or close the doors to or not welcome or not be involved in their life in some way because they have a more visible, notorious sin than we might have, Okay? And this is such an important example for us. We are called to patiently, gently, lovingly speak truth. Because that's how we were treated. We were patiently, gently, lovingly spoken truth. And we came to a realization that I am a sinner and I have rejected God's good design. But God showed mercy to us. He did not wipe us off the face of the earth. He did not cast us out. No, he extended mercy and he extended grace. And I read this this week and I thought, man, what do I even say about this? Call fire down from heaven like I'm going to try it or something? That's what I thought. But then I I really thought about this. and I'm like, man, this speaks so much to us and how we relate to those who we view as on the outside. How are we to love them? How are we to speak truth to them? Well, the Bible says that Jesus was full of grace and full of truth. He's full of love. He's full of all of those things all at once. He, he, somehow we speak truth and we still love and we still welcome and we still extend mercy and grace like we've been welcomed and shown mercy and grace. Not calling fire down from heaven. Now, if you can do that, I want to see it, okay? So call me before you call fire down from heaven. I'm just kidding. Verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And Jesus is going to, or Luke is going to give us three examples of people that wanted to follow along with Jesus or were invited to, but they had some sort of hang up, some sort of barrier, some sort of excuse. 
Now, there were a lot of people that followed along in these crowds. And I'm going to call them woulda, coulda, shoulda disciples today, right? There's a whole lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda out there in the world about what we could have, woulda, shoulda done, whatever, right? And it's all talk. It's not action, right? And these disciples, it's all talk. It's not action. They're woulda, coulda, shoulda disciples. And so some people, in, in, the, in the thrill of the moment, out of emotion or out of some whatever, make a, make a bold statement like, I want to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. Because that's what this first guy does. And he has no concept of what that means. He has no idea what he's really saying, right? And so Jesus doesn't want somebody to just make this emotional decision, hey, I'm going wherever you go, Jesus. We're bros for life, right? It's not what he wants, He wants people with a lifelong commitment to follow him. And so Jesus gives him a bit more information. Verse 58, what does he say? Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Foxes dig holes to live in, that they're secure in, that they're safe, that they they abide in. They're warm at night. Birds, they have a nest that's carefully crafted to be secure and warm and nurturing. And foxes and birds are nothing compared to the Son of Man. And he says, I'm the Christ, the one who's here to save you. And I have nowhere consistently to lay my head down at night. He's not well established. He's never settled down. He's not built a house. He's not planted roots anywhere. Jesus is all over the place. And that life is not for everyone. Now, Matthew gives us a little more detail about this story, and he tells us that this man who says this was a scribe. Now, a scribe is a religious leader, and let's just say, really, to be honest, he was, he was probably not well off. He's not super wealthy and rich, but like his life is kind of set. It's stable. It's consistent, right? He's not sleeping somewhere different every night. Let's just say it that way. And so Jesus looks at this man whose life is clean and stable, and he says, you want to follow me? Okay. You need to know what it's going to mean. It's going to mean that not everything is going to be perfect. Not everything is going to be stable. There's going to be difficulty. We're going to sleep in some places you probably wouldn't let your kids sleep in, right? We're going to go some places that are a little bit sketchy, and you need to know this as a scribe, right? What is an example of this person today? I try to be real creative. This may or may not hit. I try to think of who is this person today. And I want to call him Comfortable Carl. Comfortable Carl. This is the example of Comfortable Carl. Now, Carl is a good dude, right? Carl's a, a good friend. He's a good old boy in the community. He, he makes decent money, provides for his family. Um, but for Carl, his main desire is to make sure that everything's comfortable. Make sure that everything's taken care of and, and uh, that everything is as it should be. And when Carl doesn't like something, like maybe, I don't know, at a restaurant, he's not Karen, he's Carl, but he tends to leave when things aren't quite as comfortable as he would like. Now, co- comfortable Carl loves Jesus because he gets something from Jesus. He gets comfort. He gets peace. He gets uh, maybe blessings and whatever. And, and for comfortable Carl, 
anytime things kind of go awry, there's any sort of discomfort or, or suffering, or maybe somebody makes a decision that he doesn't like in the church, or, or, or somebody tells him that, that he shouldn't be doing that thing or saying that thing, Carl just bolts. Comfortable Carl doesn't have time for the discomfort. Comfortable Carl just leaves. Comfortable Carl is not a true disciple. <laughs> because what Comfortable Carl is following, <laughs> this is getting hard to say, is his comfort. That's what he worships. That's what he values, not Jesus. Not going wherever he goes, doing whatever he says. Right? True discipleship is not about comfort. True discipleship is about commitment and loyalty to Jesus, no matter what that may mean. Look at verse 59. Our next modern disciple said to another, Jesus said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, on this occasion, the man doesn't come up and say, hey, I want to follow you. But he's around and Jesus calls out to him and says, hey, you follow me. Now, this is not like a like in directions, hey, we're going to this restaurant, follow me. This is a formal invitation to be one of Jesus' disciples. And the man says, first, let me go bury my father. And Jesus snaps at him, right? Now, it's important that we understand the context because I think we read this and we go, Jesus, that's pretty insensitive, right? Like, this is this dude's father. Let him go bury him, Right? Um, this man's father was not dead yet. Because if his, his father was dead, he would have been burying him that day, right? He would not have been following Jesus. If he knew his father was dead, he would have already been at the burial, okay? They did not wait long periods of time. They buried that day. So this man's father is not dead. So what is he actually saying? He's not saying, hey, I need to go to a funeral. He's saying, I want to follow you, Jesus, but, but I, I just need to wait until my dad passes away. Now, why would that matter to this man? Why would that matter to this man? Because what is he going to get when his dad passes away? He's going to get an inheritance. He's going to receive something, and, and he will be stable and secure. And so what this man is saying, I, I want to follow you, Jesus, but I'm not quite secure enough yet, and so i got to wait until I get my inheritance, and then I can leave and I can go follow you. Because things will be good, and I'll have a little cash in my pocket, and my life will be a little more set. He wasn't willing to leave that future kind of possibility to go follow Jesus. And so what does Jesus say to him? Verse 60, Jesus said, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at this man and he basically says, you've got to leave this worldly care behind. Like you don't know when your father's going to pass away. And, and this is just an excuse to get out of this. He's saying that, that following me is better than any possible inheritance you might get from your father. And he's saying, you're not concerned with spiritual things. You're concerned with worldly things. You're concerned with what is right here, not really wanting to follow me. Because a true disciple of Jesus, our, our values and our, our priorities are totally reshaped when we commit to follow Jesus. Now, 
Who is this disciple today? We had comfortable Carl. This is so cringy. Uh, I'm going to call this one Future Focused Fred. Future Focused Fred. I don't ever alliterate. Like, I never alliterate. So just give me this today, okay? This, this disciple is future-focused Fred. Fred is a very goal-oriented person. He, he, has, he has a plan for his future in mind, and he is, he's got his face set towards that, right? He's got these goals. He's got high hopes, and he's working hard in life to achieve them. Fred might be a little type A, right? He might be a little too rigid about this, right? And so he is driven to achieve what is in the future. And so when, when things come along in future-focused Fred's life, I can't even say it with a straight face, when they come in his life, he filters everything through this perspective of, is this going to get me where I want to go? Is this going to help me achieve my future uh, that I focused on as Fred? And so because of this, future-focused Fred is oblivious to what's going on around him because he's just focused on what's ahead. So he's never present in the moment. He doesn't notice needs around him. He doesn't notice hurting people. He's so distracted by his own goals, his own future, that he's neglected the present, that he's neglected those around him. He doesn't accept invitations to spend time with people because that doesn't advance his own future. And all of, all of these kinds of things are trying to distract future-focused Fred from accomplishing his goals, and so he has no time for that. Being like future-focused Fred is noble in some ways, but it's not true discipleship. Because we are not called to a future. Our future is heaven. We're called to the present right now around us, the people around us, the needs around us. Fred is so consumed with his future self that he has neglected everybody else, right? And Jesus says that we are called to be present, to love those around us, to give up our own future ambitions for the sake of the kingdom. Look at verse 61. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, is fit for the kingdom of God. This third example of a would-be disciple is someone who seems to have a pretty reasonable request at first. Hey, I just, I just need to go home real fast, hug my mama, give her a kiss, tell her I'll see her in a little while, right? It seems like a very normal request. But I think Jesus knows his heart. And I think that's why Jesus responds the way he does. Because I think Jesus knows if this man goes home and he hugs his mom and he kisses her on the cheek, his affections are all of a sudden going to be swayed. And he's going to be more concerned with his own family than he is with following me. If he's made this impulsive decision to follow me, he'll make an impulsive decision to stay at home with his mama and his mama's cooking. And he knows that maybe his family and what they value will actually override his commitment to Christ. I think Jesus knows that his desire to please others is stronger than his desire to follow Jesus. And so Jesus says, look at verse 62, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. 
true discipleship, following me. There's a singular focus. You can't plow a straight row when you're looking behind you. You're distracted. You're, you're not paying attention to what's in, right in front of you. Jesus also said you can't follow two masters. You can't. You can't follow a master here and a master back there. Your heart is divided. Man, this one. Who's an example of this kind of person today? I called her sociable Sally. Um, it's actually a dude. I just realized that. So maybe we should call it. I tried to pick names of no one in here too. So I'm sorry if your name is Sally or Carl or Fred today. Uh, sociable Sally. Sally is incredibly friendly and well-connected. And these things are good, right? Some of these things. She loves people. She loves being around people. She's, she's really driven by relationships. But one thing she can be is a bit of a people pleaser. She can be consumed with friendships so much and maintaining those friendships that she will go along with the crowd wherever that sways her because that means she'll get more friendships, right? Sociable Sally is not driven by personal achievement. She's driven by relationships. She doesn't want to lose relationships or hurt anyone. And so she goes along with her friends, whether good or bad. Whatever her friends are doing, she's going to do. And sometimes that means that Sally, sociable Sally, is led astray by friends into all kinds of things. And Sally's life is all over the place because she just keeps making new friends who lead her all kinds of places. Jesus is not saying family and friends are bad, hear me. But he is saying that if we are driven by our relationships and pleasing other people, then we will be distracted and we will not have our focus on Christ and following him. Some of these are hard to read because I feel each one of them, that I am tempted and I am distracted and it's easy to veer from what Jesus is saying. But for each one of these three, comfortable Carl, future-focused Fred, and sociable Sally, this is ridiculous. I can't believe I put this on the screen. For each one of them, there's some sort of barrier in their life that has kept them from going all in on Jesus. There's some sort of something in their life that has hindered them and not allowed them to continue. They counted the cost, and they said, that's not worth it. They counted the cost, and they realized, no, I don't, I don't want that. And I hope this morning that doesn't distract you from the point that, that these 12 men, Luke, uh, all these 12 apostles... Thousands of Christians throughout human history have counted the cost of what it means to follow Jesus, sometimes in hostile countries, and have said, this is worth it, right? If we remember what Jesus just said in, earlier in Luke, and we'll close with this, Luke 9, 23, he said, if anyone would come after me, if anyone would follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I ask this simple question. What is keeping us from this? From giving up what we want, from giving up what we think is best, and going all in on Christ? It's, it's probably different for each one of us. It may have, have nothing to do with being sociable 
or future focused or any of those sorts of things. But the question Jesus is begging us to ask today, is it worth it? Is it really worth it to follow him? And if it is, then whatever you have to leave behind, leave it behind. Because he is worth it. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word. And though it challenges us and it, it, it exposes us for our other idols, for our other things that we think are most important, God, I pray that, God, as we contemplate these three disciples and we contemplate James and John and we think about their lives, God, I pray that we would look at you and we would see that you're worth it. You're worth following. You're worth being our singular focus in life. God, and I pray that whatever it is that's hindering us or keeping us down, keeping us from going all in on you, God, I pray that we would, we would give that up. We would leave it in our past and we would move forward with you. God, we need you. It takes great courage and it takes great boldness to do. And so I pray that you would give us courage. I pray that you would give us boldness to follow you uh, no matter what the cost is because it's worth it. So we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.